right, ladies and gentlemen. Good evening, everyone. Buenas noches. ¿Cómo están? Let's open our Bibles to Matthew chapter 27. Matthew chapter 27. The tradition of dignitaries, presidents, people in charge of consuls or consulates in their countries, when they come to another country, when they're visiting another country, uh, they typically bring a gift. This is a tradition. U.S. presidents routinely meet face-to-face with leaders from any, every corner of the earth. These state visits are characterized by pomp and ceremony, including formal welcomes, elaborate dinners, and the exchange of usually expensive gifts. As tokens of this ritual of diplomacy, gifts are an enduring emblem of international cooperation and friendship. That is why they do so. They say, hey, we're friends. We are together in this. This is how much I value your country. This is how much you value my country. We exchange gifts. So these are some examples of gifts that the U.S. has received from visiting heads of state. Uh, we have presidential watercolors from Russia, from Putin to uh, George uh, W. Bush, $45,000. These watercolors have a lot of jewels on them, and I guess the face of presidents. Watercolors, yes. We also have Saudi Arabian jewels from Saudi Arabia, obviously. These jewels are worth $300,000. We have a bowling alley that was gifted to Eisenhower by his home state, Missouri. Cost about $500,000. Now, you might not believe this, but the most expensive gifts thus far given to the United States by a foreign head of state or emissary are two giant pandas. The reason why is because if you didn't know, to rent a panda yearly, it's about $1.8 million. So if you want to get into a good business, save your money, buy some pandas, and rent them. In all seriousness, in reverence to what we're going to start uh, learning about tonight, these past lessons have been very heavy as it deals with the actual sentencing, humiliation, torture of the Son of Man. And as we read this, I need you to have that in your mind and, may, and, and be reverent to what we're going to read. So, we've learned how heads of state treat each other with respect and dignity. But we see that this that has not been the case thus far for the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. He was both in the house of the Jewish politicians, the leaders of the time, the Sanhedrin, and he was also in the house of the Roman governor in Palestine. And instead of receiving these gifts, in a period of two days, our King of Kings has been betrayed, arrested, beaten, humiliated, and sentenced to death. Think about it for a second. Can you imagine if this were to happen to the President of the United States in another country? Or vice versa, if the President of the United States would treat a foreign dignitary 
like the way I just described to you here in America, what would that cause? Definitely boycotts, trade bans, maybe even war. But that's the difference between worldly kings and the king of kings. The king of kings, today, he will show us that he will not retaliate to this horrific treatment, nor call his angels to annihilate those sinful people responsible for his mockery and pain, but instead will embrace unjust treatment to fulfill the will of his father and redeem a people, people for himself. Let's read today's passage. Matthew chapter 27, verses 27 through 34. The Word of God says, Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole Roman cohort around him. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. And after twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and a reed in his right hand. And they knelt down before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! They sped on him and took the reed and began to beat him on the head. After they mocked him, they took the scarlet robe off him and put his own garments back on him and led him away to crucify him. As they were coming out, they found a man of Cyrene named Simon, whom they pressed into service to bear his cross. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, or Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they gave him wine to drink mixed with gall, and after tasting it, he was unwilling to drink it. Last lessons, we've been studying the events that occur on Friday of the Passover week. We learned about Judas' remorse, not his repentance. We saw that last Wednesday, how Pilate questioned Jesus over his accusations and how Jesus remained silent. On Sunday, Emilio went over how the people chose Barabbas over Jesus to be sentenced to death by crucifixion. By the way, Stuart Weber mentions that in Mark 15.25, it informs us that Jesus was placed on the cross about 9 a.m. All that had been done to him since his conviction by the Sanhedrin had happened during the first three hours of daylight of the Passover day. So today, we will be learning about other events that took place during these three arduous hours. The painful journey that our Messiah had to suffer from the governor's house to Golgotha. Specifically, three events that occurred before Jesus' resurrection. Three events that occurred before Jesus' resurrection. The theme for tonight that I want you to have in your mind as we read this, and I pray that the Holy Spirit will convict you and that you may come to know this, is Jesus is the King who came to redeem His people through His death and resurrection. Jesus is the King who came to redeem His people through His death and resurrection. Let's begin with the first event that occurred before Jesus' resurrection, the mocking of Jesus. The mocking of Jesus, which is going to be found from verses 27 through 31. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole Roman cohort around him. Then here means right after Pontius Pilate washed his hands and sentenced Jesus to death. 
And after then also means he sentenced Jesus to death, but remember, Pontius Pilate also had Jesus to be scourged. And what is being scourged? I know that Emilio went over it briefly on Sunday, but basically to be scourged is to receive Roman lashes with a whip that at the tip of that whip would have a piece of wood, sharp piece of wood that, or, or bone to create much pain. Scourging was one of the highest levels of punishment that the Romans had and that was usually given right before someone would die in the crucifixion. This scourging had to occur to fulfill what the prophet Isaiah wrote in Isaiah 53.5. But he was pierced through our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening of our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging, we are healed. The, the lashes. We are healed spiritually. And this was also done to fulfill what Jesus himself said. A couple of chapters earlier, in Matthew 20, verses 18 to 19, it says, Behold, we are going to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and will hand him over to the Gentiles, the Roman soldiers, to mock and scourge and crucify him. And on the third day he will be raised up. This is Jesus prophesying everything that was going to occur to him through his disciples. It is within this context of Jesus just being scourged, being beat down, bleeding practically, having no back, probably his muscles in his back hanging. You've probably seen his ribcage, probably some internal organs. This is the context in which the Roman soldiers now begin to mock him at the house of Pilate. Now, please remember that when we read soldiers, Pilate, Sanhedrin, Jews, know that these people are only doing this because they had an unregenerated heart. They were only acting upon their nature, their sinful nature. All these people mentioned could have easily been one of us with an unregenerated heart. Any of us could have done these atrocious acts on Jesus with an unregenerated heart. Guys, you see sin in the world. You see society decaying. My question is, why do we act surprised? That is what characterizes an unregenerated people. Guys, the gospel is for everyone. Even the person that you think the less, they will hear the less, the least of it, the gospel is for them. The gospel is forever. Even the violent person, even the people that are crucifying Jesus, mocking Jesus, beating Jesus, the gospel is for them. For everyone who believes will be saved. You know why I know this? Because Jesus says it himself. While he's being scourged, mocked, and killed by them. What does he say in Luke chapter 23 verse 34? But Jesus was saying, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Only God can say that. So as we read, what we're going to read today and study, just like Emilio encouraged you on Sunday, let's read and look at God. 
and praise God that he could save the vilest of sinners like you and me. Let's avoid thinking highly of ourselves, saying, we would have never committed such an atrocity. Can't believe that happened. How dare they? Or let's not even have anger towards these men. Because these men could have very well been you and me in that time period if we didn't know Christ. So what are we going to do as we read? We're going to meditate on His loving kindness, which is everlasting. We're going to meditate in His grace, which He gives new mercies each day to us that sin against Him. We're going to meditate in His sovereignty, as all this was part of God's plan before the beginning of time. We're going to meditate on His obedience to the Father's will and how we would like to emulate that obedience. We're going to meditate on His love for fe- and still loving being falsely accused, spat, beaten, scourged, and crucified for humanity. That's what we're going to do as we read these verses. We're going to meditate on who God is and His character because He's an awesome God. Going back to the verse, these soldiers take Jesus back to Pilate's residence or the praetorium. Remember, at this point, Pilate, he washed his hands. He was no longer guilty. So now the soldiers will carry out the remaining sentence, the affliction and the pain. Gentile men would cause this pain on Christ to make matters worse. So what do these soldiers do? They call their buddies. It's like, hey, it's going to be a show. Let's not do this by ourselves. A Roman cohort is a division of the Roman army equal to a tenth of a legion, so it's about 600 soldiers. They call 600 of their buddies to be near of what was going to happen to Christ, the mockery that he was going to experience, and the pain and the torture. What was the first act of humiliation that they performed on Jesus? Well, verse 28 tells us. Verse 28 says, They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. To strip means to remove someone's clothes or other adornments. This in itself was embarrassing for any Jew, because any Jew condoned nudity in front of anyone. This was looked down upon. Yet here our Savior is naked in front of Gentiles. What do they do after they strip him? Well, they put on a scarlet robe on him. The Greek here for robe is a prestigious cape. Sleeveless cloak of authority. Maybe one of the cloaks that any of the Roman soldiers were wearing. They put it on Jesus, which represented authority. Now, with that in place, they dressed him with a prestigious reddish garment and started to mock him. Why? They were making fun of him because he said he was king. He said it twice. He said it in front of the Jewish Sanhedrin, and he said it in front of Pilate, I am the king. So they said, oh, here's the king. Let's, let's treat him as a king then. So they took it to heart, and what better way to treat an innocent man right before his death, who is scourged, to strip him off his clothes, and then mock him by putting on him this cape. What do they do after? Verse 29 tells us. And after twisting together a crown of thorns, they put on his head, they put it on his head, and a reed in his right hand, and they knelt down before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. 
twisting here means to weave. They weave a crown of thorns. The Greek for thorns is a thorn bush. Any type of bush or shrubbery that has numerous sharp thorns. So what do they do with this thorn, this crown of thorns that they created? They, they weave. Well, they forcefully put it on Jesus. He was not giving a crown of gold, a worthy crown of gold. He was giving a crown of thorns. Painful crown of thorns. And on top of the mockery, what do they place in his right hand? They place a stalk, a reed. A stalk is a, just a group of wheat together tied up. And they place it in his hand, representing the substitution of a royal scepter, which was a symbol of the king's authority. Lastly, what did they do? They knelt before him, as one would do to a king. And when they knelt, they said, Hail, King of the Jews. Hail, King of the Jews, with his crown of thorns and his reed. Little did they know they were bound to the true king. And I find this ironic. I find this ironic, this mockery ironic because this could have very well led them to hell. Right? Their denial of Christ. And not only denial of Christ, they're mocking of Christ, right? Well, where what? What's going to happen at one point in time in the future? Philippians 2, 10 and 11 says it, and it's clear. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, meaning hell. And that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Don't be like the soldiers who were ignorant, who were in front of the true king and just passed right through, passed right through them. You could be saying to yourself, how could they mock him? They had Jesus. They probably saw the miracles that he performed. They saw that he was innocent, that Pontius Pilate didn't want to, you know, crucify him. And they still didn't believe. You too have something valuable. More than they do. You have the written word of God that talks about this Jesus, that points to this Jesus, that says whatever this Jesus is, is true, is real, and he's our Savior. You are also without excuse. And every moment you think that you're better off being your own Lord and not bowing to the Father, you're mocking Jesus just like these soldiers mocked him. The good news is, guys, that this horrific death that we're talking about, it's the death that paid the price for our sin to make us right with God so that the Bible says it is clear that if you believe in your heart that Christ rose from the dead and you put your faith only in Him for salvation and you repent from your sins and make Him Lord, you could be saved. This is the goodness of the gospel. This is the whole purpose of what we're talking about. This death gives us the righteousness to be before the Father if you so repent and believe. Don't let another moment go by as it might be too late. John adds another detail of his mockery. While they're bowing before him with his robe and his reed and the crown of thorns, John 19.3 says, And they began to come up to him and say, Hail, King of the Jews, and to give him slaps in the face. The king of the world gets slapped in the face 
by the very one who's going to save. The dear Lord continues to demonstrate his great love for us and his father even after this punishment and mockery is escalated. So this is, this is, this is nothing yet. It, it, it keeps on going. And we see God's character still loving, still not retaliating, still wanting to obey the Father. Praise the Lord for Christ and for who He is because only God can do that. What's worse? Verse 30. They spat on Him. And then not only that, they took the reed and began to beat Him on His head. They spat on our Savior. The cultural connotation back then and today, you spit in somebody's face, it's out of disgust. Not only is he being spat on by potentially 600 people, he's also getting slapped by potentially 600 people. Yet he remains collective and calm. He remains focused on his obedience to the Father. I don't know about you, but the, so I, I don't know anything who has the self-control of getting spat on or slapped in the face and not retaliating in self-defense or doing something about it. Here Christ is doing it among 600 men. And he still remains God, loving, compassionate, obedient to the Father's will. Guys, keep on praising Christ for this. Don't read this and pass it, let it pass by you without really understanding our Christ, our Savior, and what he's done. So not only do they spit on him and slap him, but now they take the reed and they beat him on the head repeatedly. What does he have on his head? The crown of thorns. What does that imply? These crown, these thorns are penetrating his skull by every lash that he gets on the head. I mean, just picture it. Like Jesus is bloody. His back, his, the, the blood from the, the thorns. He's probably swollen from all the slaps, the spit, everything. What, what, do you, what makes you think or... How would humanity, if somebody do such a thing, to continue to escalate the pain and, and still kick somebody on the floor when they're still down, when they're down and kicking, kicking without mercy? What, 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 would, what would that cause? What would cause that, what would cause that for someone to do that? Well, the answer is sin. Sin is it's, it's simple. That's, that's why mankind, we can never save ourselves. We have the potential of doing the greatest evil to each other and the world. I mean, look at world history. Look at the horrific genocides that have occurred. Look at all the wars fought in the name of God, supposedly. The Atlantic slave trade. What about our current human trafficking of children? This is not a surprise. Paul knew about this. He writes it in, and he talks about it. The guilt of mankind before the Lord in Romans 1, 28-32. Hear how he describes mankind. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper. Being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice, they are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful, 
And although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they do not do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. So sometimes you might not even think that's a, such a big deal, but you support those that are doing these things. Look at what Psalm 53 says about us. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt and have committed abominable injustice. There is no one who does good. God has looked down from heaven upon the sons of men to see if there is anyone who understands, who seeks after God. Every one of them has turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. This is why this type of violence occurs. This is why we cannot save ourselves. This is why we should praise the Lord that He would even consider to save any of us from hell. Because according to those lists, I don't know about you, but that's pretty convicting. I don't know about you, but all those guilty, 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 deserving of hell, like there's no tomorrow. Many of that was us before Christ. And Christ didn't have to die for these things, but He did. And that's why we point to Christ for what He's done. Let's go back a little bit. In what condition is Jesus being mocked again? Well, we know that the severe back, no back. On top of the crucial pain, He's naked, being mocked, has a crown of thorns, is being slapped. He still remains... He still maintains his composure and maintains wanting to do the Father's will. See, sometimes we pray for the Lord to take so many of our tribulations away from our lives, and here is Christ, the Son of God, knowing that his Father is in control, even amongst all that I just mentioned. I'm not saying that we're perfect, and I'm not saying that we'll ever be like Christ in that sense, but man, we should strive for it. No matter what our circumstances are, no matter what we're living, if Christ, the Son of God, trusted the Father, who are we not to? These physical sufferings occurred to fulfill the prophecies in Isaiah. Isaiah 50, verse 6. I gave my back to those who strike me, and my cheeks to those who pluck out the beard. I did not cover my face from humiliation and spitting. So this concludes the first event that occurred before Jesus' crucifixion. Let's move on to the second event that occurs. And this is the journey of Jesus in verse 32. The journey of Jesus. After they mocked him, they took the scarlet robe off him and put his own garments back on him and led him away to crucify him. It's time now. Now we walk walk to the place where he is going to be crucified. Hear what Carson, a D.A. Carson states. Normally a prisoner went naked to his place of execution and was scourged along the route. This was custom, that this custom was not followed with Jesus, maybe because he had already been flogged and more flogging might have killed him. Or it may reflect an attempt not to offend too many Jewish sensitivities during the feast time. How much did this cross weigh? According to MacArthur, about 200 pounds. And for those that don't know what crucified means, it means to be or become executed by being nailed to a wooden cross. 
this is where he, he was being led to. He was being led to the cross. Jesus would have to carry the weight of his own cross to Golgotha with his scorched back, with his crown of thorns hitting every time he couldn't carry it for a long distance to Golgotha. Or at least he would try the most he could in his human effort. But what happened? Verse 32. As they were coming out, they found a man of Cyrene named Simon, whom they pressed into service to bear his cross. As Jesus began to walk with his cross, it appeared that he couldn't. And Matthew records that the Romans saw Simon of Cyrene, and they pressed him into service, which means to demand and take the use of his services by the military or public authority. And what do they press him for? To bear, to lift Jesus' cross. Simon of Cyrene, let's just talk about him real quick. You can only speculate what was going through his mind. Did he know Jesus? Was he a follower? Did they talk as they were walking toward Golgotha? Did he advocate for him as the Romans were beating him? It also could have been an embarrassment. As Simon knew, and everyone knew, that only the wretched, wretched, most inhumane criminals were crucified for their punishment. So he, he doesn't know Jesus. And he could have said, for all I know, this guy is a murderer, and here I am carrying his cross, and the humiliation that he might have felt, and the association of people thinking, oh, this man knew Jesus, that's why he's carrying his cross. Those are all speculations. But I know something that we cannot speculate on, and the Bible is clear. Carrying the cross for Jesus had a lasting impact in the life of his wife and his children. How do I know that? Well, Mark records that they pressed into service a pastor by coming from the country of Simon of Cyrene, parentheses, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to bear his cross. So you see, Mark, he wrote the Gospel of Mark in Rome to Roman Christians. Some of, the, some of the, those that were receiving the letter would have known, not known Simon, but they knew his sons, Rufus and Alexander. And we know that at least Rufus and his mother must have been strong believers, because guess what? Paul mentions them in his conclusion in the letter of Rome to the Romans when he's giving his praises and greeting in Romans 6.13. Greet Rufus, a choice man in the Lord, also his mother and mine. Calling this man's mother, like, hey, that's how loving she is, but she's also my mother as well, in a loving tone. God divinely set for Simon to carry Jesus' cross and will serve as a seed for his children and his wife and potentially him to be saved by Christ. Here we praise God for his sovereignty even in this incident of salvation for those in the gospel and what Jesus can do in people's lives. Luke describes other events that occur on the journey of Golgotha. In Luke 23, verses 27 to 31, he says, And following him, this is Jesus carrying the cross with Simon, was a large crowd of the people and of women who were mourning and lamenting him. But Jesus turning to them said, Daughters of Jerusalem, stop weeping for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills cover us. For if they do these things when the tree is green, what will happen when it's dry? Even in the midst of suffering, he's still looking after his people. He's still heralding the truth. He's still looking after them. 
obviously Jesus is talking about the Roman uh, destruction of the temple in 70 A.D. Where he's saying, look, they're doing to this to me. I'm an innocent man. Imagine what they're going to do to you. And he literally, the temple was destroyed. This is the relentless God that we serve. No matter what, no matter when, he's still thinking of others. Remember the garden of Gethsemane? He was thinking of his disciples. Pray, keep watch, because what's coming is hard. Took aside his agony of, I'm going to be forsaken by the Father, to see how his disciples were doing in the midst of his suffering. In the midst of his suffering, carrying the cross, he's looking after the women who are behind him and giving them a, a warning. Beware of what's coming. Just now, we turn to the last event that occurred before Jesus' crucifixion. And it's the determination of Jesus. The determination of Jesus. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they gave him wine to drink mixed with gall. And after tasting it, he was unwilling to drink. After a long, treacherous journey, they reached Golgotha, the place of skull, because it was a hill that looked like a skull. And it was outside the walls of Jerusalem. And the Romans probably saw Jesus thirsty and in pain and gave him to drink something that contained wine that contained gall. And gall is a bitter substance, perhaps even poisonous, that either A, would kill him faster to avoid the pain, or B, would serve as an anesthetic. So they wouldn't be in so much pain right before they're going to be crucified. This is what they did. See, Jesus was determined to die for the salvation of the world. He rejects that. He doesn't drink it. We see his determination to follow and fulfill the Father's plan. He would drink a cup. MacArthur states, he was determined to drink the cup the Father had given him, meaning the cup of wrath. He would endure the full measure of pain, physical, emotional, and spiritual. I just went over with you some gruesome descriptions of the events that took place before Jesus' crucifixion. How he was falsely accused, beaten, spat on, beaten on the head while wearing the crown of thorns, exhausted, thirsty, naked. And you might think, man, now I know why Jesus was really sweating blood in Gethsemane. He knew all that pain, the physical pain that he was going to endure. But remember, he wasn't sweating because of the pain that he was going to endure. He was sweating on the thought that he was going to be abandoned and forsaken by the Father. That is why he was sweating blood and anxious and was praying to the Father. He knew he could endure the physical pain because it was only momentary. But the thought of being separated by his father caused the son of man to sweat blood, even amongst everything that I just described for you. And even amongst what's coming next lesson of the actual crucifixion, even amongst all that, all the pain that you would think, Jesus knew it was momentary. His thought was, I do, want, do not want to be forsaken by the father. 
His final prayers got him to that point. Remember when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane? He's praying and he's pouring out his heart to God, and God strengthens him. That strength, you see it all the way to the crucifixion. Can we say, like I said before, that we fear the separation of the Father like Christ feared it? We should. And I pray that you do. To finish, we went over three events that occurred before Christ's crucifixion. We went over the mocking of Jesus. We went over the journey of Jesus. And we went over the determination of Jesus. And the main idea that hopefully you will go away with today is knowing that Jesus is the King who came to redeem His people through His death and resurrection. So how can we apply these marvelous truths to our lives? Number one, praise God for His mercy, love, sovereignty, determination, and plan of salvation. See, in our finite minds, we will never understand God's love. The fact that we sin daily before a holy God, and that we stand forgiven because of Christ, should cause every one of us in here to jump for joy that God does not see our sin and our evilness, that He sees Christ if you are a believer. Praise the Lord that He sees Christ and not us. Because we are characterized by Romans 1, by Psalm 53. Without a regenerated heart, that's who we are. With a regenerated heart, now the Holy Spirit dwells in us and we're able to not be a slave to those sins and live to be like Christ, to be to the image of Christ in His stature. Number two, we should hate sin as God hates sin. Think about this for a second. If sin wasn't important to God, there would have been a lesser way to pay for it. There would have been a lesser way. God hates sin so much that it had to be paid through death. And not only any death, the most humiliating death possible at the time. What does Romans 6.23 say? For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. He hates sin to the point where he would send his only son to pay the price. Because only a God-man could take the sin of the world and bear it. Number three, bow the knee to the king. Bow the knee to the king. Guys, Matthew was telling his readers and us, this is the only king that will save you. Believe and repent in him. You see this? idea of a king of a physical kingdom forget about it you're wrong this is what he said is true he is a king a spiritual king of a spiritual kingdom where we will all be judged one day and if you repent and believe in this king you will have eternal life he is the king jesus is the king and what is a king required faithful subjects slaves subjects to Him, to obey His commandments, to obey His love. And 
FYI, side note, you know the passage in Philippians 2 where it says, consider the interests of others more important than yourself. Love others more important than yourself. The context is this. If Christ came to earth and was humiliated and died this death and forgave us, he considered humanity, he considered others more important than himself. Who are we not to consider the other more important than ourselves? That is the love of Christ. That is the context within that verse. Powerful. So I pray that this can be convicting to our hearts and that if Jesus is not your Lord, that you make him Lord. Don't let one more night pass without that being a reality in your life because Jesus is King. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before your throne and we thank you for your plan of salvation. Father, only you can die like you died and become sin for us so that we would become your righteousness before, so Jesus could become our righteousness before the Father. Thank you, Lord, for doing this, for dying on the cross, for paying the wage of sin. Thank you because in the midst of all that we read about today, Lord, we only see how great you are, how loving you are, how awesome you are, how forgiving you are, how merciful you are. We will never understand it. We will never fully comprehend it. We have finite minds, Lord, that won't allow us to. But in what we do know of you, let us praise you with our mouth. And let us sing to you of your glory because you are worthy. You are the King. You are the Lord of Lords, King of Kings. Every knee will bow down to you. Allow us to do this voluntarily while we still can and choose you. And not involuntarily when it's too late. We worship you, we adore you, and we praise you. In your name we pray. Amen.